0: Hey everyone, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 17, where we talk about the second category of normative ethics, which is called deontology or duty ethics. But before we dive deeper into that, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. You know, I always say I'm doing great. One of these days you're going to ask me and I'm going to be in the depths of despair and I wonder what I'll say. But as far as today goes, everything's great. You know, it's uh, we're moving into September here. We've got cooler weather coming and I'm excited about that. And school's going really great. We're, uh, we just wrapped up the Romans and uh, Stoicism. We're moving on to medieval philosophy next week. And everything's moving along swimmingly. How about you? That's great to hear. Are you, before I, I get into myself,
0: are y'all talking any about uh, Aquinas or any of, any of those fun guys?
1: Oh, yeah. For medieval, I've selected Augustine, Aquinas, uh, Maimonides, you know, I'm just giving them excerpts of, of each of their kind of big works and uh I'm kind of unpacking that. So this unit we're doing in philosophy right now in my class is very surface, right? Like we spent a week and a half on Plato, Aristotle and Socrates, which isn't very long. So we're just like brushing past getting them familiar with certain names and giving them like the briefest of readings to kind of introduce them to them. Anyway, long story short, (laughs) sorry, it was a long answer. That's that's who we're covering, yeah. That's really fun. I
0: guess this is a good transition point, but uh, when you mentioned Socrates in this past week, or actually yesterday, I read this really great excerpt. I, I think everyone's familiar with Plato's Apology, or maybe not everyone's familiar with it, but a lot of people have heard of it, but there's also this alternative account from this writer named Xenophon, and so mm, it's, really, mm-hmm. it's it, w- it was really cool because it's more of a, I think, a history of Socrates. So I, I got a great deal of pleasure. Like, I, I think I've mentioned this like five or six times on this podcast, but this is my like sixth straight semester of just focusing on Plato and Socrates or something. So <laughs> it's been it's been a good time. And it's thinking, thinking about how your students will grow from the first time I read Socrates and Plato. It's just a great thing to hear.
1: Oh, yeah, that is cool. Uh, I remember when you were reading The Republic, (laughs) maybe in 10th grade, I think it was, probably the first time you read it. That was Uh, my first read. (laughs) Yeah, so compare that to where you are now and your understanding of all that, and that's really neat. Yeah,
0: it's been a good time.
1: I'm aware of Xenophon's account of Socrates, but I've never read it. I know that he's one of the major sources for our our understanding of, of Socrates and who he was and kind of what his project was, aside from... Plato he's kind of like the the second source, second big source. Am I right on that?
0: Yeah, I think that's 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 right. So I think when I think more about Plato writing about Socrates, I think of he's using a very polished dialogue version of Socrates that is very fun to read. It's not very straightforward, but it's it's very nice to read, very it's like a literary work, you know it could be a novel. I I think a lot of people could read it that way. When I think more about Xenophon or how I I was reading it yesterday is it's a lot more like a history. There's a bit of dialogue in it, but it's more, it was more focused on like the charges and and what the accusers
1: were actually saying. That's cool. I'll have to pick it up. I've always always meant to read it. I have lots of always meant to write, read uh, books. I <laughs> got stacks of them actually, um, <laughs> but uh, but Xenophon's one of them, so that's cool. I'm glad you've enjoyed that. Anything else new in your world outside of Plato? Well, I'll, I'll give a
0: quick update on the the philosophy class that I'm TAing for because I think it's it's been a fun time. Oh yeah. Um, on Friday, I was having a little s- small group breakout session, I, I suppose, and I'm not supposed to be talking really much in it other than kind of clarifying what people say this is probably how you feel too Mr Parsons when you teach class so I guess I'm getting a taste of my own medicine but it's so frustrating not to be able to you know I, I think we're supposed to be letting students kind of figure out the answers by themselves but it's very frustrating <laughs> It's very frustrating
1: yeah yeah that's hilarious <laughs> it's it's hard being a facilitator because that's really what you're doing. And And that's a lot of what I do in class as well uh, It's really hard not to interject your own thoughts and opinions as well mm. and okay well I'm glad you're <laughs> glad you're getting <laughs> that that particular insight and perspective
0: no it's 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 really funny. Um, I feel bad for you looking back on on when I was in your class so it's it was just really funny for me um, but the class other than that's going great. I mean we just finished up moral relativism. I don't know if we ended on a, a great packed but I think they're going to be thinking more about it and then we're going to be starting next week into a topic about sex and marriage so that's going to be really cool because I think that's kind of a part of philosophy that we don't talk about too much or at least I'm I'm very unfamiliar with so that'll be great
1: that's uh, true I mean we kind of well know that we avoid it we certainly avoid it in high school <laughs> 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 I don't know why but uh you know it is what it is, I guess. But even at university, right? Like, you guys don't talk a lot about that. Uh-huh. And I mean, frankly, a lot of the philosophy I read doesn't doesn't really approach it either. I, th- I think, honestly, or we're really rambling here today, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, honestly, mm-hmm. I think where that particular topic comes up more often is in feminist yep. philosophy, yep. which really only became, I guess, prominent in probably the last 70 years or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean... You know, Spinoza wasn't that interested in talking about it, I guess. (laughs) You know, we know Kierkegaard had a great romance. (laughs) Completely failed romance, but uh, he was very passionate. But yeah, I would say philosophers write more about the topic of friendship than they do marriage and sex. I want to
0: put kind of a plug for, for later in the episode. In our quote corner, we're going to be talking about someone who thought a lot about sex and marriage, so super excited about that.
1: All right, cool. Well, I guess speaking of such things, we should get on to the episode. All right, guys, welcome to the main section of our episode. Main section? That sounds so lame. Anyway, (laughs) welcome to the main section of our episode where we're we're going to talk about what's the second system of ethics that we've looked at, but this is the third episode in a four-episode arc on morality and ethics. But today we're going to talk about it's a very fancy word it's called deontology but really that's what that means is duty like what is our duty what is our obligations you know last week we or last episode we looked at utilitarianism and how that is determining the greatest good for the greatest amount of people like that that is what determines what is morally good greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people and it's very focused on consequences right like ends versus, means. like The the ends definitely justify the means uh, with utilitarianism. But deontology, which was formulated by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, deontology focuses on the actions themselves, not so much on the consequences. Is what you're doing good outside of what the results of that action will be? And he relates that to the idea of Duties, But we'll also talk about something pretty. We'll also talk about something that's relatively famous uh, or well-known called the categorical imperative, which will help us determine what is morally right and morally wrong. But before we get into all that, I figure we would talk about duties themselves. What are our duties? So, Andrew, you're a student in college. And so what would you say the duties of a student are? Well, I think the first one that comes to mind is probably
0: showing up on class on time, or probably showing up for class at all. I think that's a pretty good duty. What are what's a duty that you would you would see as a teacher?
1: Oh, that I would expect of a student? Huh. Well, I'd expect for them to do their best. Mm. Which I know is is an ideal. <laughs> I mean, I would like for teachers to do their best as well, but you know, we're all human and we have we have off days. But so I guess I should rephrase that and say to to always try to do your best. What are some other, I guess, roles that people play in life that we could apply this idea of determining what their duties are?
0: I think it would be pretty dependent on whatever kind of for Kant. At least my understanding, it would, it would be kind of whatever roles you were taking on in your life. And that would kind of differentiate the, the roles. The roles for a son are going to look a lot different from the roles of a wife. And, and so the roles that you're filling all have different duties that are kind of assigned to them. So for instance, let's use the example that I just used of a, a son and a mother. I'm not going to expect, expect like a, a five year old son to take care of his baby sister or something like that, you know, or, or to drive the family to church every weekend, right? Like, I I just don't think that's, that's the job of a five-year-old child. Maybe some of his duties might be like to love his sister, to um, love his, his parents and respect them. But when we would flip it on the flip side of someone like the, the mom, you know, where we would expect something greatly different from her. We would expect her to provide and take care of, her family, to be a good wife, et cetera. Am, am I missing anything in there, Mister Parsons?
1: No, I don't think so. I think the the work in this particular philosophical system is is identifying what those duties are for each role, and and then how those are justified. For Kant, you know, the justification that our duties are not arbitrary. Like a spouse's duties is, are not arbitrary. It's not something we just make up. It's not based on relativism. Uh, We can determine what these duties are by using our reason. And so if you're not familiar with Kant, this is going to be a very rationalistic approach to ethics and morality as opposed to maybe Utilitarianism, although certainly an argument could be made that that's very rationalistic, but I feel like if we put out, if we're putting a lot of the emphasis on consequences, sometimes consequences we choose them because they will make us feel good, and so there's a little more emotion involved in that. Whereas Kant really advocated for a, a very rationalistic approach to the to the justification of our duties. Now we do get into some difficulties here, though, right? Like one of the phrases you used was the duties of a wife. Now that could be a real hot button topic there lots of societal expectations come with that they come with with any role however though if you think about the duties of a son the duties of a son in a very patriarchal uh, society might be very different than than one that's not or certainly different cultures east versus west if we're to be very broad and generic the duties of a son would be very different the duties of a male and a female in society can be very different too so the question is like, how do we determine those duties?
0: So I found this example of a difference between someone who would classify themselves as a, a deontologist and someone who would be a utilitarian. So we'll just say Kant is the deontologist and Johnny is the utilitarian. So let's say, for example, Johnny the utilitarian yeah. proposed to kill everyone currently living on land that cannot support agriculture in order to bring about a world without starvation. So for a utilitarian, as we talked about last week, that would make a lot of sense because we're going to bring good to the world because we're not going to have any more starvation. People are going to be able to use more resources per person. These people who weren't doing much, getting much out of the land um, in Johnny's eyes, they would be sacrificing themselves for the needs of the the entire world, right? So the utilitarian would take that every time, or at least the quote-unquote real utilitarian. Now, a deontologist would disagree with this, um, and I think many more people would as well, but we're, we'll just focus on the the deontologist for this one, okay? So uh, a deontologist would argue that this world without starvation was bad because of the way that it was brought about. So there's some kind of problems with these people just killing people for some kind of good end would not be good in the eyes of a deontologist.
1: So why would it not be good?
0: Yeah, so it wouldn't be good because so the action that's bringing about what's going to happen wasn't right in the eyes of a deontologist. So like you just said a few minutes ago, we're not going to be focusing on the kind of ends of the situation. We're not going to be focusing on that world without starvation. We're going to be looking on the actions that kind of limiting starvation. So we're going to be focusing on, you know, the killings of those people. We're not going to be looking at how that could be justified in some way in the end. Um, When we take a look at that justification, is is it good to kill somebody? we'll see in a few minutes why Kant will say this, but uh, the answer is going to be no, it's 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 not okay to just kill someone. It's kind of a more microscopic approach, I think, than a consequentialist would take. But uh, I think that example was very helpful for, for me when I was thinking about it a few years ago when I saw it the first time.
1: Yeah. So in that particular example, the action is, you know, we are going to kill some people who are not interested in promoting this new world order (laughs) of agriculture, right? Now, of course, the consequence, I suppose, might be nice. Like everyone in the world having food is a very good thing, but we're not going to get there by this particular method because using a deontological approach, the action is what's important, not the consequence. So the action would be some people would have to be sacrificed. And for Kant anyway, killing someone is wrong. That's always just wrong in his eyes. No matter what the result is, right? So you could even take this particular example and apply it to, say, criminal justice, something like the death penalty. You know, a deontologist would say, you know, the action of killing a human being, even if they are a prisoner who has killed many other human beings, like that's not a justifiable action because killing someone is always wrong. Doesn't matter what the consequence is. You might say the consequence is like oh yeah, we'll show people that truth and justice is important and uh, and that we're having really strict enforcement of laws and this will deter further murders in the future and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, none of that matters, right, for a deontologist. What matters is do we kill someone, yes or no, regardless of context.
0: Before we dive more into what Kant's actually arguing about the categorical imperatives, I think it's important to talk Just very briefly about why he's so concerned with reason as a justification for his moral principle or his ethical system. Oh, yeah, that'd be
1: good. So I Mm -hmm. think
0: that it's important to recognize that Kant's a product of the Enlightenment period. Yeah. So Kant was born in 1724. Kant was a baby of the age of reason. So it it makes sense. And a lot at this time, I forget if we've talked in other episodes about this, maybe um, in the first few episodes, but during the Enlightenment, it was a total dependence on reason. That's just how it was going at that time. Mm -hmm. So what Kant is proposing in his book called The Groundwork of Metaphysics of Morals is he's trying to provide a system, an ethical system that is grounded entirely in reason. Um, so that humans don't have to rely on a system that's given by God, supported by God, anything like that. So it's, I think it's very important to recognize that because a lot of how we're going to be establishing these duties and norms, they're not coming from an entelos like we'll see in virtue ethics next week. They're not coming from some arbitrary calculus like we saw last week. They're really trying to come straight from reason and reason alone.
1: Yeah, the Enlightenment philosophers saw, well, a couple of things are at work in the Enlightenment, right? Like we're coming into what some historians will call the scientific revolution. So there's a great deal of emphasis on using logical structures to create experiments that result in conclusions that can be proved verifiably through using reason and logic. But we're also... And I think this is sometimes lost in the Enlightenment story. Europe is also coming out of decades, if not centuries, of religious warfare between the Catholics and the Protestants. And that was also very emotional, if you will. Lots of, lots of actions were justified due to their consequences. And the Enlightenment thinkers, and especially Kant, wanted to get away from all of that. They wanted to come up with a system. Kant wanted to come up with a system Where you could avoid these really terrible conclusions based on the ends justify the means, you know, the slaughter of thousands of Protestants or the slaughter of thousands of Catholics because it achieves some goal for the greater good of God uh, and the Catholic and/or the Protestant movement. Like they wanted to get away from that idea, and so this is why you see, uh, in conjunction with the scientific revolution, this hyper uh, emphasis on reason during this during this time period so kant proposed in his ethical system what he called the categorical imperative now we know the word imperative means like you must do it (laughs) right and of course categories we have different aspects of this ethical system so categorical imperative there are three maxims that he identifies so, maxim number one is the maxim of universality. This is the quote from, from Kant. He says, act only according to that maxim whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should become a universal law without contradiction. So, in other words, when we're making a moral decision, you, as the moral actor, should envision a world where the moral decision you are making, everyone else also makes that same decision. Like in your hypothetical world, is this a desirable place to live in if everyone makes the decision that you are making?
0: Yeah, that's a great, that was a great explanation for it. So I don't know if I have too much more to say about it, at least for the explanation part. But let me use an example real quick to to make it more clear. So say that you're going to the store and we have, I don't know if these exist in the rest of the US, but we have these grocery stores called Kroger. Or let's just use H E B. That's a that's a good Texas brand. Um, Heck so, yeah. <laughs> so let's say we we Mr. Parsons and I go into H E B. Our bank accounts are running low, but we really need some toothpaste because everybody needs toothpaste. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that struck me as funny. Okay, <laughs> everybody needs. That should be a maxim. <laughs> 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 that's a categorical imperative <laughs> okay. categorical imperative we should all go to the dentist for heaven's sakes okay anyway sorry we're in H-E-B and we need toothpaste and our bank accounts are anyway, low anyway
0: so we're, we're buying groceries and we get to the toothpaste aisle we know we need toothpaste that's just kind of a law and we we go up to the counter and we just look for the cheapest toothpaste we find one that's like 50 cents it's the HEB brand, of course, and we just slip it into our pockets, right? So th- this doesn't really seem to be hurting anybody, right? So the the company's not really hurting; they've lost you know fifty cents worth of toothpaste. The the people at the register who are working there probably aren't going to get in trouble. I mean, it's fifty cents, right? And you know, Mr. Parsons and I are getting some free toothpaste, basically, and and we're able to keep our teeth clean for a few more weeks. But under this imperative that Kant lays out this would just be very bad thing to do when we apply it to everyone else in the rest of the world so let's just quickly imagine a world where everyone's just stealing something cheap that they need because they don't think it's going to hurt anybody or, or not even because they don't think it's going to hurt anybody but that's just how it is people are just going around and stealing things uh, because they need them and when we think of a world like that where that's just the norm that everybody's just taking things and and bootlegging them, that seems kind of like a pretty bad world to live in. I mean, I think I would feel pretty unsafe. I think the world would be a bit more chaotic uh, than it would now. And and the world wouldn't look very, very good. So in Kant's eyes, we shouldn't make that decision to steal that 50 cents worth of toothpaste, even though it doesn't really seem like it's going to hurt anybody. Because if everybody was doing that, then the world would be not a very good place.
1: Yeah, it's the whole victimless crime argument, right? That this toothpaste, I mean, it's not even a 50 cent loss. If that's the, if that's what HEB is charging for it, it's probably more like a 15 cent loss or something. I mean, that's not going to affect a corporation as large as HEB, but if everyone did that, is that a world you'd want to live in? This is like the classic sort of Jean Valjean stealing bread Mm -hmm. argument, right? Like Jean Valjean in Les Miserables steals bread because his niece is starving and he has no money, his family has no money, he steals a loaf of bread. Well, the consequences of that, if we're going to get utilitarian about it, the consequences of that is that his niece is now fed, and that is a good, right? Like, we're saving a human life. But if you look at it deontologically, the moral or the the moral action is in the action itself. And so, is stealing good? And for Kant, the answer to that is no. We should never steal because the action of stealing is wrong regardless of the consequences. Yeah, it's a good example.
0: Thanks. I I spent a lot of time crafting when I was looking in the, the mirror this morning and ran out of toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> should I use my... You see, this is... <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs>
1: this is this is how you know philosophy is applicable to our lives. <laughs> so it's the big question
0: should i should I take some of my roommate's toothpaste? Should I use it?
1: <laughs> yeah, so so this has a lot to I mean a lot to do with things that we would actions that we would call today, you know, victimless crimes, whether that's like down, illegally downloading a song. Oh, what are, what are some other victimless crimes? You know, st- stealing a one-tenth of a penny off of a bank account. You know, you do that millions of times, and all of a sudden you got lots of money. But, like, no one's going to miss that one-tenth of a penny. You know, things like that. Uh, why are you laughing so Is this a scheme you have? No, it's it's that um, Office Space
0: movie. Oh, it is from Office but Space. But it's, it's really fun. I forget. I was writing... that's my final paper last year in one of my classes it's an ethics class and i was using that one tenth of a penny scheme so Mm. i i don't know it's just a funny funny example
1: oh it is funny but it happens all the time insurance whatever like you know it's called embezzlement i mean that's 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 the crime it seems victimless and especially if the person you're taking money from is so outrageously wealthy like you could take $1,500 Fifteen hundred dollars from them, and they they wouldn't even notice, right? So yeah, it places the focus on the action itself rather than the consequences. And you got to envision a world where everyone steals fifteen hundred dollars from wealthy people.
0: Before we jump into the second, um, the second formulation of the argument, let me just highlight their use of reason in this. I think it's really important for the second one too. But notice Kant's way of looking at. An action is just using our reason to to see how it would be in the world if we didn't do it like that. We're thinking, okay, if we stole toothpaste, how would this look on the worldwide scale? We're not appealing to God. We're not appealing to some forms of goodness and badness. I guess there's only a form of the good for Plato, but um, a form of goodness. And we're not appealing to anything that's not derivable strictly from our reason.
1: Yeah. It's real clear cut, yep. right? Like don't steal toothpaste. Like stealing is bad. Yep. Don't do it. Period.
0: Our second formulation of a categorical imperative is taking that first one in mind and, and building uh, building on it. So that's why I mentioned it as a formulation. So the next one states, act in such a way that you treat humanity whether in your own person or in the persons of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end.
1: That's one of my favorite quotes, honestly, from Immanuel Kant. Whether I agree with deontology as a whole, I really feel that we should not manipulate people in order to achieve a certain end. Certainly manipulation on a really insidious level, but maybe even in a rather innocuous level that's manipulating people what might seem like in a very small way here's an example Andrew. you know we can think of manipulating people on large scale or something like that like maybe world war ii propaganda stuff Mm -hmm. like that let's let's like bring it down to maybe a little more 21st century here and let's talk about advertising and consumers (laughs) so let's just keep using toothpaste i like this um (laughs) you andrew you want to have the best teeth, like the the widest. Actually, have you seen these billboards around town? I'm sure they're in other places uh, that says "sexy teeth." i Have you ever seen no. those? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's like a I don't know if it's a dentist like chain or a franchise of dentist offices, or if it's a particular type of dental procedure. But it just says "sexy teeth," <laughs> and it's like it, and it's all black. You know, and it just says "sexy sexy teeth" in glittering letters and like some very attractive looking person on the billboard smiling <laughs> that's, that's really it long. that's the entire advertisement <laughs> yeah it is so anyway back to my silly example uh so you want to have the best teeth andrew and so there are many toothpaste companies out there that are vying for your dollars and they're going to create all of these commercials right in order to convince you to buy their particular toothpaste because let's face it like toothpaste isn't that complicated <laughs> that they, they all probably do pretty much the same yeah, job probably right so why would you buy AIM versus Crest versus Colgate, you know? <laughs> so advertisements attempt to influence you in order to buy their particular brand of toothpaste. Is that manipulation? What do you think? Is, is that the type of manipulation like Kant is talking about? I'm trying to remember something. I feel, I feel like I've just had this conversation
0: with someone else. I guess this is just deja vu. I think it could really depend on how the advertisers were doing very definitive practices were because I could see, you know, some advertising. We're talking a lot about toothpaste today, but I was watching this YouTube video. It could <laughs> it could be totally false, but it was like talking about how those charcoal toothpastes. I don't know if you've heard of them. I, I think they're kind of a big... Oh, I have heard, heard of that. them. It's kind of a new yeah, thing. It's, it's like a fad. I, I At least I know a lot of people my age are all into these charcoal products, but it was some dentist talking about how, you know, these advertisements they've been showing like, oh, yeah, if you put charcoal on your teeth for 10 minutes, all the gunk's going to come away. Um, you're going to have really white teeth. And the dentist was just like, yeah, this is just not true. There's no chemical basis in charcoal. If anything, it's going to make your teeth less white um, and just stain them. So you definitely shouldn't be doing this. And I was like, what is going on? You know, like I've, I've heard this definitely before. I've seen these ads on on YouTube where I was watching that Freaking video where it was like, yeah, if you just apply for ten minutes and it's going to come off real easily. So in a situation like that, Khan's going to be like, yeah, you know, you're just using Andrew's uh, wish to become a, a teeth model for your own good, Crust or or Colgate or charcoal teeth whitening company. Um, you're just using Andrew, and that's that's just bad. That's just wrong.
1: Yeah, you'd hope companies create a product for the benefit of the person and surely that is what most companies do with the products they create but are we seen as consumers who need this product for the betterment of our life or are we seen as just simply a means to make the most amount of money as possible Um, well let me read you this quote real
0: quick that i was reading in this philosophy paper it's not really a a big point to this but It was a a paper about McIntyre, um, and it says, Those engaged in finance, particularly money trading, are, in McIntyre's view, like good burglars. Teaching ethics to traders is as pointless as reading Aristotle to your dog. The better the trader, the more morally despicable. So Mm. I guess these dang teeth whitening companies are pretty morally despicable.
1: That's right. Down with the capitalistic dental (laughs) industry. (laughs) Let's rise up. You know, my grandma would use uh, hydrogen peroxide and baking soda to brush, brush her teeth, and it seemed to do just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's
0: that's what that's what my um, that's what my parents always told me. Yeah,
1: that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's step away from advertisement. Let's talk about things in our daily life. I guess you know more examples of this particular action. Like if if and I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. So, but like you know there are times in our lives where we want a certain person to do a certain thing whether it's we want to go out and have a good time and hang out or whatever um you know but the other person is reluctant you know we might try to talk them into it at, at what point you know is is just trying to talk, talk them into it move to some form of manipulation where we just want this end we want to go out and hang out it's friday night for heaven's sakes. so so we we do this all the time we certainly do it in business. We do it in our organizations that we work for. When we want, say, like new policies uh, put into place, uh, we have our own particular agendas that we want passed. We will manipulate people in order for them to, if you will, join our side. And, and Kant just simply says, this is wrong. You can't manipulate people or situations to achieve a desired end. So I guess a, a flip question here, flip side counter argument question would be like but is there a time is there ever a time when we can manipulate people to achieve an end cuz this is a pretty absolutist stance you know this is really
0: funny well it's it's not really funny but this is something that i i used to think a lot about not for my personal reasons of wanting to manipulate people but it was just like things that i saw at school and in high school and college but i was i was noticing you know, some people are really good at, they're just very charismatic, right? I feel like they can get people to do whatever they want if someone really looks up to them, right? And so I, I could notice that, you know, some of these people who are very, just very charismatic and natural, maybe leaders or, or talkers or something, I don't know, uh, but they, they recognize that in themselves and they could kind of use that manipulation to help their friends almost. If their friend was unmotivated, say like, you know, the, this very naturally charismatic person saw that their friend wasn't going to classes. They weren't trying their best to be a good student in Mr. Parsons philosophy class. And so this person was like, Hey, you know, um, they use their skills of rhetoric and, and manipulation and they, they help them become a better student. I don't know what Kant would say about that. I, I, have a gut feeling that he would say that that would not be good, even though that would seem to be good for for the person, but I'm not sure.
1: Right. The consequence would be desirable, right? right. And it doesn't seem a great deal of harm is being done to the student. Yep. Right. In this hypothetical scenario, I'm being an inspiring teacher and I'm using this these tactics to uh, to get a student to perform better which certainly benefits them in the future right (laughs) everyone needs a little kick in the butt every now and then right of course parents i mean you know now that you said that i think about parenting right (laughs) when we when we are very small children you know parents parents use means all the time to to achieve a particular end like if you don't clean your plate you're going to sit there. You're just going to sit there all night (laughs) until you finish everything that's on your plate or whatever else, you know, potty training, you know, you give them all kinds of ridiculous rewards or, or setting them in timeout or something like that. You know, the, the lines get pretty blurry there sometimes when it comes to, I guess what we would call, I guess, harshly discipline, but maybe just behavior modification with, uh, with others. Yeah. Uh, did Kant have children I can't I don't think uh, he did. I don't think so either I wonder what kind of parent he would be <laughs> you know like little uh, little pesky eight-year-old Kant boy um, you know like breaks a lamp because he's sword fighting with imaginary person or whatever you know, <laughs> you know what's what's Emmanuel Kant the father going to do I don't know <laughs> Okay, so maxim number three is what's called kingdom of ends. This one says, we are our own ultimate moral authority, but we must treat others as we treat ourselves. In other words, this is why he calls it a kingdom of ends. And of course, this is coming out of an era with kings uh, or or monarchy. So we we must regard ourselves as sovereigns making the laws, as a king would be a sovereign making laws, but also being subject to those very same laws. In other words, since we are our own moral authorities using reason in our moral decisions, we create these laws, these obligations related to our duties. But in creating those laws, we must also hold ourselves accountable to the very same laws that we're creating. We can't apply them to everybody and tell them like, you need to do this because this is your duty and then ourselves not follow that. I don't know if this is a reaction to like, you know, this is certainly a turbulent time in European history, overthrowing monarchies and creating republics and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know if this is a reaction to that, but uh, certainly whether it's monarchs or whether it's emperors or whether it's presidents and prime ministers, certainly an, an argument has always been that they create lots of laws that they themselves don't necessarily live, live up to. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the third maxim is just, uh, hey, you're your own moral sovereign but you to follow your own laws that you create.
0: Basically, though, I think you did a really good job of explaining it. And I don't want to repeat what you said uh, there a minute ago, Mr. Parsons. But I think there's really something to be said about an individual recognizing that they're not immune from their own ethical systems. And I think this is something that's necessary for every ethical system to kind of survive in the world. Um, or, to, or to survive as an ethical system that people actually find useful in their lives. Because if we're taking some ethical system and we're just kind of applying it to a worldview or on how society acts or how others act, it's not really changing who we are. And I think every ethical system, I'm pretty sure that Kant says this, his ethical system is also designed to make you a better person, to make you a more moral and ethical person, right? It makes sense that this ethical system needs to apply to you. And these ethical norms that you're setting just from your own reason is something that you are going to want to follow and, and think that it's necessary to follow for yourself. It can't just be something that I apply to Mr. Parsons and, and don't live by myself. So I can't say, oh, yeah, Mr. Parsons, when you need some toothpaste, you can't go out and steal. But when I go out t- to the store and I see some toothpaste, I'm like, yeah, you know. That's fine with me. I I think uh, since I made the rules, I don't have to really follow them by. There's also this really funny example that one of my favorite philosophy professors at Rice uses is with this this imaginary character called Pablo the Narco. He's this narcotics operator where he sells drugs or something. He gets really mad when when people are when when Pablo the Narco's men who, who work for him are are getting killed by rival gang bosses but uh, Pablo the narco is totally fine with sending out his men for hits I mean it' it just doesn't really make sense so for Pablo the narco Kant would say yeah you know you can't send your your own men on hits if, if you want to live ethically I think Kant would say of course more about Pablo the narco's operation but that's just a, just a little, <laughs> right. little little example of it
1: No but it's a great point we've been the we, we've been the rules all the yeah. time all of us personally but when we see other people bend their own rules we get really annoyed with that <laughs> you know we create all kinds of little excuses for ourselves of why we're going to like pilfer that 50 cent tube of toothpaste but you know someone else we love to point out people's hypocrisy politics of course <laughs> is an excellent example especially in the age of twitter and uh, i don't know just the internet where past videos or Speeches that they made or whatever can be easily accessed by the public and then a politician will say something that's uh, opposite of what they said like 15 (laughs) years ago and you know people will go nuts about it like we love pointing out people's inconsistencies and I think this is why you know again Kant had such an emphasis on reason like if you just follow your reason you won't create. All of these little micro excuses that you use in your personal life that you would expect other people that you would expect other people to to, of course, follow.
0: So we've talked a lot about what duty ethics is and laying out Kant's points. But now, of course, we must subject it to the rigorous criticism stage of the episode where all of these ethical systems get blown to shreds. <laughs> so I think that the first criticism that we have to talk about is one of where duties might be conflicting with each other. And I think this is really something that's quite apparent when you're just thinking about duty ethics for the first time. When I was using the example of the mother earlier and uh, her duties to you know her, her children, I think the mother obviously has some duties that to her children that we could all kind of point out and that Kant would point out too. But let's say that the mother, we'll call the mother Jill, we'll say Jill has a few other duties too. She has a few other roles which also carry their own duties with them. So Jill has a position at a huge bank in, in a downtown metropolis and Jill is a finance trader, works very long hours. Jill has responsibilities in her job. You know, maybe she's like a a manager of her company or CEO. Say Jill's the CEO of her big finance company. That comes with a lot of duties and jobs, right? Like she has to go to board meetings. She has to make sure her team is doing well. She has to check up on them. So Jill has a, a wide variety of expectations with her job as the CEO, right? Like the board places a lot of She has to go to board meetings. Jill has to uh, meet with investors, et cetera, et cetera. So let's say that Jill also, as as a mother, has the responsibility to, I don't know, spend time with her children. I think this would be pretty evident as a a duty. Um, So let's say that Jill's duty is to spend, this is arbitrary, but spend five hours a week with her children. Uh, Seems very low, but, you know, whatever. So let's say that A few weeks go by and Jill's able to spend zero hours a week with her children. How are we supposed to weigh these roles against each other under Kant's understanding and critique of um, other ethical systems, which do provide more of a ability to weigh to decisions like utilitarianism last week, which one's going to bring the most good. So I think that's a, a pretty firm criticism of deontology, How are we supposed to weigh different roles and different duties of each other?
1: Yeah, it can certainly get complicated. I think in everyone's lives, uh, as a duty as a child or a duty as a student, or a, uh, yeah, I, c- I can imagine other probably very difficult professions like law enforcement or uh, or being a medical doctor and an ER or something. There are probably some times where you have conflicts of duty, right? Like you're supposed to care for a patient, but you're supposed to care for all patients and so yeah, conflict of duties I think is big one when when we're not trying to consider context. Sometimes context is important.
0: No, I totally agree. I think that's that seems to be true, yeah.
1: And maybe that brings us to like another criticism is is that deontology can sometimes be considered morally cold, mm-hmm. right? Like it it's so rational. It's it just so doesn't consider the consequences that the person just comes off being a a cold-hearted jerk. You know, if we go back to Jean Valjean and stealing the bread, uh, maybe we would come up with a different system that we might be able to provide bread to his niece. But nonetheless, Jean Valjean needed to feed his niece. She was going to die. Do we just not consider that? You know, Jean Valjean infamously was put in prison. (laughs) for many, many years, uh, you know, because it's stole bread. That's a fictional character, but it certainly happened in France during those time periods. And so do we just not consider the context of this young child's life who's going to die if she doesn't get some nutrition? And and that's that's where it sometimes comes off as as being seen as morally cold.
0: And I think that the, one of the last objections I think we had was something you kind of mentioned in there the, the context is just kind of hard in utilitarianism to to weigh a situation out right so you were using the example of the bread with i think the ontology doesn't consider the situations many types of in all systems right it's it's can only be focused on the action itself it's not focused on the consequence the situation the end or whatever
1: yeah and all this leads to just this comparison between utilitarianism and, and deontology. Like I get it. Sometimes context is important. Sometimes it is, but I also get that considering context. Sometimes we make excuses and we do things that maybe we shouldn't do in order to achieve a particular end. Therefore we should only consider things from a rational standpoint in what our actions are. But in doing that, sometimes, horrible things happen because you haven't considered context and you sort of end up in this feedback loop where, uh, you know, you bounce back and forth between deontology and consequentialism. But the problem is, and what these guys were trying to solve is that we should have a consistent way to determine what is morally good and, and not morally good. And it seems like sometimes utilitarianism is a good way. And sometimes deontology is a good way but neither are good all the time in all situations. That's my take. Well, that's all I have, Mr. Parsons.
0: Do you have any, <laughs> anything else you want to add to,
1: to this? No, I think that's it. I think we've, uh, I think we've subjected Kant to our scrutiny. <laughs> so uh, it is now time to uh, subject something else to our scrutiny, which is a quote. So let's head over to the quote corner. <music>
0: All right, everybody, welcome to the quote corner. Really excited for this week's quote because it's of a philosopher who I've just recently been getting into. This is a 20th century philosopher named G.E.M. Anscombe. She was a student of Ludwig Wittgenstein and a very famous virtue ethicist, a revival virtue ethicist, and a very very famous catholic 20th century catholic philosopher so um, i'm super excited to be sharing her on this week's episode Um, fun fact before we jump in i just think this is really cool so she was at oxford and she has these very famous debates with c.s lewis the guy who wrote narnia and other christian works she just totally destroys him and all of these debates it's it's quite funny So C.S. Lewis, he has this argument against naturalism um, that she just destroys. We can go into that in another episode, but it's really funny because I don't think she gets quite the credit she deserves, even though she's great. And C.S. Lewis is such a famous figure in both the world of Christian philosophy, philosophy as a whole, and also just pop culture too, right? Like Narnia is such a famous book. So I, I just think it's... Uh, she deserves some more praise and, and credit. So anyway, uh, without further ado, this week's quote is, it is not profitable for us at present to do moral philosophy. That should be laid aside at any rate until we have an adequate philosophy of psychology in which we are conspicuously lacking. And this is Anne Scum from her book, Modern Moral Philosophy. So Mr. Parsons, first pass, what do you think?
1: Well, my first question is, what is a philosophy of psychology? Like, what is that and why is it so important that we can't do moral philosophy until we have a philosophy of psychology? So I guess that would be my question, clarification.
0: So what Anscombe is talking about here is basically the philosophy of human nature. Anscombe heavily believes that how we are as humans is fundamental in how we think about moral problems. And so I think her argument that's, that's going to be coming up in, later in this book, this is just from the introduction, or this isn't even, this is an essay from that book. So it's, it's not even, it's just laid out in the rest of the paper. But Anne Scombs going to be arguing, look, you know, um, we don't have this tight grasp of human nature that we think we do. She's going to be saying that it's hard for us to make these huge leaps in moral judgments about who we are as humans. And how we should act when we're making these big leaps in thinking about how we are as just humans.
1: Yeah, I get that. So like, if we don't, if, if we don't even really truly understand what our nature is, then how on earth can we begin making moral claims and considerations, right? Yes. Is that, is that kind so of that's, that? A, yeah. that's
0: exactly right. So it's not that she's like, yeah, we can't, we can't know anything about our human nature it's it's that we're making these huge jumps there's there's a few things that just seem to be like true about our human nature one of them is that we can like learn things we can be habituated into things things like that but when we make start making these larger moral leaps you know like oh this this was a big one because this is when she's she's writing we are evolutionarily programmed to believe x we're evolutionary programmed to to respond to y so does that make sense
1: yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is, this is interesting to me. So on one hand, I agree with it. On the other hand, I disagree. We have to do something <laughs> you know, like, like the discipline of psychology uh, has only existed for about 140 years or so. And certainly we were making claims about what human nature was before then. I mean, we can go all the way back to Aristotle and he was talking about what human nature is. So I don't know that we can like Wait on psychology to catch up. Uh, we need a moral philosophies of some kind. But on the other hand, I certainly agree. It's fascinating what we've discovered in the last hundred and how many ever years uh, since the discipline of psychology has come about. And, and with the furtherance of, of things like brain chemistry and neurology and, and all of that, how much we're learning about what our nature truly is. So I'm, I, I see both sides of this particular what do you think well
0: for those who don't know me personally i i'm I'm just going to give a quick disclaimer i despise psychology i i really (laughs) i really just despise it i think it's a point i i don't even consider it sorry if people are well maybe i should be a little nicer um i don't think much of psychology is grounded in science or at least I'm talking about psychology that's done more with studies of humans, not with um, more of what I would consider like neuroscience or cognitive science. But I think like there was this really interesting article, scientific article. It was a meta study of um, these very famous psychological studies, many of them that are on like Psych 101, AP psychology, these, these very famous landmark experiments. And um, this meta study tried to replicate these studies and found that um, it was less than, I can't even remember, it was just an astonishing low reproduction rate. So we've been making all of these judgments about, oh, yeah, you know, babies can't do X, babies can't do Y for for decades now. And and it's become kind of something we just kind of accept as an axiomatic truth in our society um, that we are like this, we are programmed like this but psychology has not yielded any true ground into these actually in any scientific manner. So when I'm reading this quote, I think it's more along the lines in my mind of like, you know, we have this very programmatic approach to science of philosophy of science that we've taken very seriously for the past 400 years. We need to apply this to psychology and then we're going to start being able to actually get some results and then we can start making more concrete judgments sorry i
1: just i no i love it (laughs) no no, there won't be any (laughs) there won't be any uh controversy related to those those particular statements wow i've never heard you come so strong i like it (laughs) you you sound like the way i sound like when we start talking about um in class, we start talking about evolutionary psychology yeah. and how we're we're all just basically programmed, uh, <laughs> and we 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 really don't have a choice in anything we do. We're just we're just like we're just really fancy monkeys out there following <laughs> our urges, and we can't help it. Um, I think my caveman caveman brain. I think
0: my um, my displeasure of psychology started from from yours. I don't I don't know.
1: <laughs> oh oh well uh i guess i'll take credit (laughs) you were so absolutist in your condemnation i'm i'm sorry i i just had to get it off my chest that's okay it's okay i hope you feel better well i i I imagine how you're gonna i have a lot of pressure now no 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 no. (laughs) please don't (laughs) uh i'm gonna give this quote three and a half stars
0: yeah i'm i think i'll i'll give us um I, for the quote itself, just because it's quite selective, I'll give it three stars. Um, oh, yeah. So, I, well, that's
1: really surprising.
0: Okay. The reason I'm giving it three stars is because I I don't think it's not profitable for us to to do moral philosophy. I think it obviously is, and I think if we were were reading the entire paper, I would give it higher. But just the context of the quote, Anscombe is being vague to support her larger point in the end that virtue ethics are are the only ethical system that we should follow yeah just just the quote itself is not
1: i'm not a big fan okay there you have it folks three stars and three and a half stars Okay, that's about it, everybody. Thank you for spending your valuable time with us today.
0: We'd love it if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when new episodes drop and pass it on to your friends so they can start making right choices in all of their actions.
1: I would say it's their duty (laughs) to pass it on to their friends. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question you'd like for us to discuss, or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com.
0: You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter, Instagram, and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com where you can find many things about the show,
1: including our book lists. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the free use of his music. We use in the intro and outro. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.